Section 33 of The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lonnie Decker. The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. Part 1. Book the Third. Chapter 5. Misanthropy Plays Its Pranks. A strange and alarming grinding of teeth reached him through the darkness. It was enough to drive one back. He advanced. To those to whom silence has become dreadful, a howl is comforting. That fierce growl reassured him. That threat was a promise. There was there a being alive and awake, though it might be a wild beast. He advanced in the direction whence came the snarl. He turned the corner of a wall, and, behind in the vast sepulchral light, made by the reflection of snow and sea, he saw a thing placed as if for shelter. It was a cart, unless it was a hovel. It had wheels. It was a carriage. It had a roof. It was a dwelling. From the roof arose a funnel, and out of the funnel, smoke. This smoke was red, and seemed to imply a good fire in the interior. Behind, projecting hinges indicated a door, and in the center of this door a square opening showed a light inside the caravan. He approached. Whatever had growled perceived his approach and became furious. It was no longer a growl which he had to meet. It was a roar. He heard a sharp sound, as of a chain violently pulled to its full length, and suddenly under the door between the hind wheels two rows of sharp white teeth appeared at the same time as the mouth between the wheels a head was put through the window peace there said the head the mouth was silent the head began again is any one there the child answered yes who i you who are you whence do you come I am weary, said the child. What o'clock is it? I am cold. What are you doing there? I am hungry, the head replied. Everyone cannot be as happy as a lord. Go away. The head was withdrawn, and the window closed. The child bowed his forehead, drew the sleeping infant closer in his arms, and collected his strength to resume his journey. He had taken a few steps and was hurrying away. However, at the same time that the window closed the door had opened. A step had been let down. The voice which had spoken to the child cried out angrily from the inside of the van. Well, why do you not enter? The child turned back. Come in, resumed the voice. Who has sent me a fellow like this? Who is hungry and cold and who does not come in? The child, at once repulsed and invited, remained motionless. The voice continued, You were told to come in, you young rascal. He made up his mind and placed one foot on the lowest step. There was a great growl under the van. He drew back. The gaping jaws appeared. Peace, cried the voice of a man. The jaws retreated. The growling ceased. Come up, continued the man. The child with difficulty climbed up the three steps. 
he was impeded by the infant so benumbed rolled up and enveloped in the jacket that nothing could be distinguished of her and she was but a little shapeless mass he passed over the three steps and having reached the threshold stopped no candle was burning in the caravan probably from the economy of want the hut was lighted only by a red tinge arising from the opening at the top of the stove in which sparkled a peat fire on the stove were smoking a porringer and a saucepan containing to all appearance something to eat the savory odor was perceptible the hut was furnished with a chest a stool and an unlighted lantern which hung from the ceiling besides to the partition were attached some boards on brackets and some hooks from which hung a variety of things on the boards and nails were rows of glasses coppers an alembic a vessel rather like those used for graining wax which are called granulators and a confusion of strange objects of which the child understood nothing and which were utensils for cooking and chemistry the caravan was oblong in shape the stove being in front it was not even a little room it was scarcely a big box there was more light outside from the snow than inside from the stove everything in the caravan was indistinct and misty nevertheless a reflection of the fire on the ceiling enabled the spectator to read in large letters ursus philosopher the child in fact was entering the house of homo and ursus the one he had just heard growling the other speaking the child having reached the threshold perceived near the stove a man tall smooth thin and old dressed in gray whose head as he stood reached the roof the man could not have raised himself on tiptoe the caravan was just his size come in said the man who was ursus the child entered put down your bundle the child placed his burden carefully on the top of the chest for fear of awakening and terrifying it the man continued how gently you put it down you could not be more careful with it a case of relics is it that you are afraid of tearing a hole in your rags worthless vagabond in the streets at this hour who are you answer but no i forbid you to answer there you are cold warm yourself as quick as you can and he shoved him by the shoulders in front of the fire how wet you are you're frozen through a nice state to come into a house come take off those rags you villain and as with one hand and with feverish haste he dragged off the boy's rags which tore into shreds with the other he took down from a nail a man's shirt and one of those knitted jackets which are up to this day called kiss me quicks here are clothes he chose out a heap of woolen rag and chafed before the fire the limbs of the exhausted and bewildered child who at that moment warm and naked felt as if he were seeing and touching heaven the limbs having been rubbed he next wiped the boy's feet come you limb you have nothing frostbitten i was a fool to fancy you had something frozen hind legs or forepaws you will not lose the use of them this time dress yourself the child put on the shirt and the man slipped the knitted jacket over it now 
The man kicked the stool forward and made the little boy sit down, again shoving him by the shoulders. Then he pointed with his finger to the porringer which was smoking upon the stove. What the child saw in the porringer was again heaven to him, namely a potato and a bit of bacon. You are hungry. Eat. The man took from the shelf a crust of hard bread and an iron fork and handed them to the child. The boy hesitated. Perhaps you expect me to lay the cloth, said the man, and he placed the porringer on the child's lap. Gobble that up. Hunger overcame astonishment. The child began to eat. The poor boy devoured rather than ate. The glad sound of the crunching of bread filled the hut. The man grumbled. Not so quick, you horrid glutton. Isn't he a greedy scoundrel? When such scum are hungry, they eat in a revolting fashion. You should see a lord sup. In my time I have seen dukes eat. They don't eat. That's noble. They drink, however. Come, you pig, stuff yourself. The absent of ears, which is the concomitant of a hungry stomach, caused the child to take little heed of these violent epithets, tempered as they were by charity of action, involving a contradiction resulting in his benefit. For the moment he was absorbed by two exigencies, and by two ecstasies, food and warmth. Ursus continued his imprecations, muttering to himself, I have seen King James supping in proporia persona in the banqueting house, where ought to be admired the paintings of the famous Rubens. His majesty touched nothing. This beggar here browses, browses a word derived from brute. What put into my head to come to this Weymouth seven times devoted to the infernal deities? I have sold nothing since morning I have harangued the snow. I have played the flute to the hurricane. I have not pocketed a farthing. And now, to-night, beggars drop in. Horrid place! There is battle, struggle, competition between the fools in the street and myself. They try to give me nothing but farthings. I try to give them nothing but drugs. Well, to-day I've made nothing. Not an idiot on the highway, not a penny in the till. Eat away, hell-born boy, tear and crunch. We have fallen on times when nothing can equal the cynicism of spongers. Fatten at my expense, parasite. This wretched boy is more than hungry, he is mad. It is not appetite, it is ferocity. He is carried away by rabid virus. Perhaps he has the plague. Have you the plague, you thief? Suppose he were to give it to Homo. No. Never. Let the populace die. But not my wolf. But by the by, I am hungry myself. I declare that this is all very disagreeable. I have worked far into the night. There are seasons in a man's life when he is hard-pressed. I was to-night by hunger. I was alone. I made a fire. I had but one potato, one crust of bread, a mouthful of bacon, and a drop of milk, and I put it to warm. I said to myself, Good! I think I am going to eat, and bang! This crocodile falls upon me at the very moment. He installs himself clean between my food and myself. 
Behold how my larder is devastated. Eat, Pike, eat, you shark. How many teeth have you in your jaws? Guzzle, wolf cub. No? I withdraw that word. I respect wolves. Swallow up my food, Boa. I have worked all day and far into the night on an empty stomach. My throat is sore, my pancreas is in distress, my entrails torn, and my reward is to see another eat. Tis all one, though. We will divide. We shall have the bread, the potato, and the bacon. But I will have milk. Just then, a wail, touching and prolonged, arose in the hut. The man listened. You cry, sycophant? Why do you cry? The boy turned toward him. It was evident that it was not he who cried. He had his mouth full. The cry continued. The man went to the chest. So it is your bundle that wails. Veil of Jehoshaphat, behold a vociferating parcel. What the devil has your bundle got to croak about? He unrolled the jacket. An infant's head appeared, the mouth open and crying. Well, who goes there? said the man. Here is another of them. When is this to end? Who is there? Two arms, corporal, call up the guard. Another bang? What have you brought me, thief? Don't you see it is thirsty? Come, the little one must have a drink. So now I shall not have even the milk. He took down from the things lying in disorder on the shelf a bandage of linen, a sponge, and a phial, muttering savagely, What an infernal place! Then he looked at the little infant. "'Tis a girl. One can tell by her scream, and she is drenched as well." He dragged away, as he had done from the boy, the tatters in which she was knotted up rather than dressed, and swathed her in a rag, which, though of coarse linen, was clean and dry. This rough and sudden dressing made the infant angry. "'She mews relentlessly,' said he. He bit off a long piece of sponge tore from the roll a square piece of linen, drew from it a bit of thread, took the saucepan containing the milk from the stove, filled the phial with milk, drove down the sponge halfway into its neck, covered the sponge with linen, tied this cork in with the thread, applied his cheeks to the phial to be sure it was not too hot, and seized under his left arm the bewildered bundle which was still crying. Come, take your supper, creature. Let me suckle you and he put the neck of the bottle to its mouth. The little infant drank greedily. He held the phial at the necessary incline, grumbling, They are all the same, the cowards. When they have all they want, they are silent. The child had drunk so ravenously, and had seized so eagerly this breast offered by a cross-grained providence, that she was taken with a fit of coughing. You are going to choke, growled Ursus. A fine gobbler, this one, too. He drew away the sponge, which she was suckling, allowed the cough to subside, and then replaced the phial to her lips, saying, Suck, you little wretch. In the meantime, the boy had laid down his fork. Seeing the infant drink had made him forget to eat. The moment before, while he ate, the expression in his face was satisfaction. Now it was gratitude. He watched the infant's renewal of life. 
the completion of the resurrection begun by himself filled his eyes with an ineffable brilliancy ursus went on muttering angry words between his teeth the little boy now and then lifted toward ursus his eyes moist with the unspeakable emotion which the poor little being felt but was unable to express ursus addressed him furiously well will you eat and you said the child trembling all over and with tears in his eyes you will have nothing will you be kind enough to eat it all up you cub there is not too much for you since there was not enough for me the child took up his fork but did not eat eat shouted ursus what has it got to do with me who speaks of me wretched little barefooted clerk a penniless parish i tell you eat it all up you are here to eat drink and sleep eat or i will kick you out both of you the boy under this menace began to eat again he had not much trouble in finishing what was left in the porringer ursus muttered this building is badly joined the cold comes in by the window pane a pane had indeed been broken in front either by a jolt of the caravan or by a stone thrown by some mischievous boy ursus had placed a star of paper over the fracture which had become unpasted the blast entered there he was half seated on the chest the infant in his arms and at the same time on his lap was sucking rapturously at the bottle in the happy somnolency of cherubim before their creator and infants at their mother's breast she is drunk said ursus and he continued after this preach sermons on temperance the wind tore from the pane the plaster of paper which flew across the hut but this was nothing to the children who were entering life anew whilst the little girl drank and the little boy ate ursus grumbled drunkenness begins in the infant in swaddling clothes what useful trouble bishop tillotson gives himself thundering against excessive drinking what an odious draught of wind and then my stove is old it allows puffs of smoke to escape enough to give you tracheasis one has the inconvenience of cold and the inconvenience of fire one cannot see clearly that being over there abuses my hospitality well i have not been able to distinguish the animal's face yet comfort is wanting here by jove i am a great admirer of exquisite banquets in well-closed rooms i have missed my vocation i was born to be a sensualist the greatest of stoics was philoxenus who wished to possess the neck of a crane so as to be longer in tasting the pleasures of the table receipts to-day not nothing sold all day inhabitants servants and tradesmen here is the doctor here are the drugs you are losing your time old friend pack up your physic every one is well down here it's a cursed town where every one is well the skies alone have diarrhoea what snow anaxagoras taught that the snow was black and he was right cold being blackness ice is night what a hurricane i can fancy the delight of those at sea the hurricane is the passage of demons it is the row of the tempest fields galloping and rolling head over heels above our bone boxes 
in the cloud this one has a tail that one has horns another a flame for a tongue another claws to its wings another a lord chancellor's paunch another an academician's pate you may observe a form in every sound to every fresh wind a fresh demon the ears hear the eyes see the crash is a face zounds there are folks at sea that is certain my friends get through the storm as best you can i have enough to do to get through life come now do i keep an inn or do i not why should i trade with these travellers the universal distress sends its spatterings even as far as my poverty into my cabin fall hideous drops of the far-spreading mud of mankind i am given up to the voracity of travellers i am prey the prey of those dying of hunger winter night a pasteboard hut an unfortunate friend below and without the storm a potato a fire as big as my fist parasites the wind penetrating through every cranny not a penny and bundles which set to howling i open them and find beggars inside is this fair besides the laws are violated ah vagabond with your vagabond child mischievous pickpocket evil-minded abortion so you walk the streets after curfew if our good king only knew it would he not have you thrown into the bottom of a ditch just to teach you better my gentleman walks out at night with my lady and with the glass at fifteen degrees of frost bareheaded and barefooted understand that such things are forbidden there are rules and regulations you lawless wretches vagabonds are punished honest folks who have houses are guarded and protected kings are the fathers of their people i have my own house you would have been whipped in the public street had you chanced to have been met and quite right too there must be order in an established city for my own part i did wrong not to denounce you to the constable but i am such a fool i understand what is right and do what is wrong oh the ruffian to come here in such a state i did not see the snow upon them when they came in it had melted and here's my whole house swamped i have an inundation in my home i shall have to burn an incredible amount of coals to dry up this lake coals at twelve farthings the miner's standard how am i going to manage to fit three into this caravan now it is over i enter the nursery i am going to have in my house the weaning of the future beggardom of england i shall have for employment office and function to fashion the miscarried fortunes of that colonial prostitute misery to bring to perfection future gallows birds and to give young thieves the forms of philosophy the tongue of the wolf is the warning of god and to think that if i had not been eaten up by creatures of this kind for the last thirty years i should be rich homo would be fat i should have a medicine chest full of rarities as many surgical instruments as dr lenachra surgeon to king henry the eighth divers animals of all kinds egyptian mummies and similar curiosities 
I should be a member of the College of Physicians and have the right of using the library, built in 1652 by the celebrated Hervey, and of studying in the lantern of that dome, whence you can see the whole of London. I could continue my observations of solar obfuscation and prove that a caligenous vapor arises from the planet. Such was the opinion of John Kepler, who was born the year before the massacre of St. Bartholomew, and who was mathematician to the emperor. The sun is a chimney which sometimes smokes. So does my stove. My stove is no better than the sun. Yes, I should have made my fortune. My part would have been a different one. I should not be the insignificant fellow I am. I should not degrade science in the highways. For the crowd is not worthy of the doctrine. The crowd being nothing better than a confused mixture of all sorts of ages, sexes, humors, and conditions, that wise men of all periods have not hesitated to despise, and whose extravagance and passion the most moderate men in their justice detest. Oh, I am weary of existence. After all, one does not live long. The human life is soon done with. But no, it is long. At intervals, that we should not become too discouraged, that we may have the stupidity to consent to bear our being, and not profit by the magnificent opportunities to hang ourselves which cords and nails afford, nature puts on an air of taking a little care of man. Not tonight, though. The rogue causes the wheat to spring up, ripens the grape, gives her song to the nightingale. From time to time a ray of morning or a glass of gin, and that is what we call happiness. It is a narrow border of good round, a huge winding sheet of evil. We have a destiny of which the devil has woven the stuff and God has sown the hem. In the meantime you have eaten my supper, you thief. In the meantime, the infant, whom he was holding all the time in his arms very tenderly, whilst he was vituperating, shut its eyes languidly, a sign of repletion. Ursus examined the file, and grumbled. She has drunk it all up, the impudent creature. He arose, and sustaining the infant with his left arm, with his right he raised the lid of the chest, and drew from beneath it a bearskin the one he called, as will be remembered, his real skin. Whilst he was doing this, he heard the other child eating, and looked at him sideways. It will be something to do if, henceforth, I have to feed that growling glutton. It will be a worm gnawing at the vitals of my industry. He spread out, still with one arm, the bearskin on the chest, working his elbow and managing his movements so as not to disturb the sleep into which the infant was just sinking. Then he laid her down on the fur, on the side next to the fire. Having done so, he placed the file on the stove and exclaimed, I'm thirsty, if you like. He looked into the pot. There were a few good mouthfuls of milk left in it. He raised it to his lips. Just as he was about to drink, his eye fell on the little girl. He replaced the pot on the stove, took the file, uncorked it, poured into it all the milk that remained, which was just sufficient to fill it, replaced the sponge and the linen rag over it, 
and tied it round the neck of the bottle. All the same, I'm hungry and thirsty, he observed. And he added, When one cannot eat bread, one must drink water. Behind the stove there was a jug with the spout off. He took it and handed it to the boy. Will you drink? The child drank and then went on eating. Ursus seized the pitcher again and conveyed it to his mouth. The temperature of the water which it contained had been unequally modified by the proximity of the stove. He swallowed some mouthfuls and made a grimace. Water, pretending to be pure, thou resemblest false friends. Thou art warm at the top and cold at bottom. In the meantime the boy had finished his supper. The porringer was more than empty. It was cleaned out. He picked up and ate pensively a few crumbs caught in the folds of the knitted jacket on his lap. Ursus turned toward him. That is not all. Now a word with you. The mouth is not made only for eating. It is made for speaking. Now that you are warmed and stuffed, you beast, take care of yourself. You are going to answer my questions. Whence do you come? The child replied, I do not know. How do you mean you do not know? I was abandoned this evening on the seashore. You little scamp, what's your name? He is so good for nothing that his relations desert him. I have no relations. Give in a little to my taste, and observe that I do not like those who sing to a tune of fibs. Thou must have relatives since you have a sister. It is not my sister. It is not your sister? No. Who is it, then? It is a baby that I found. Found? Yes. What? Did you pick her up? Yes. Where? If you lie, I will exterminate you. On the breast of a woman who was dead in the snow. When? An hour ago. Where? A league from here. The arched brow of Ursus knitted and took that pointed shape which characterizes emotion on the brow of a philosopher. Dead. Lucky for her. We must leave her in the snow. She is well off there. In which direction? In the direction of the sea. Did you cross the bridge? Yes. Ursus opened the window at the back and examined the view. The weather had not improved. The snow was falling thickly and mournfully. He shut the window. He went to the broken glass. He filled the hole with a rag. He heaped the stove with peat. He spread out as far as he could the bearskin on the chest, took a large book which he had in a corner, placed it under the skin for a pillow, and laid the head of the sleeping infant on it. Then he turned to the boy. Lie down there. The boy obeyed and stretched himself at full length by the side of the infant. Ursus rolled the bearskin over the two children and tucked it under their feet. He took down from a shelf and tied round his waist a linen belt with a large pocket containing, no doubt, a case of instruments and bottles of restoratives. Then he took the lantern from where it hung to the ceiling and lighted it. It was a dark lantern. When lighted, it still left the children in shadow. Ursus half opened the door and said, I am going out. 
Do not be afraid. I shall return. Go to sleep. Then, letting down the steps, he called Homo. He was answered by a loving growl. Ursus, holding the lantern in his hand, descended. The steps were replaced. The door was reclosed. The children remained alone. From without, a voice, the voice of Ursus, said, You, boy, who have just eaten up my supper, are you already asleep? No, replied the child. Well, if she cries, give her the rest of the milk. The clinking of a chain being undone was heard, and the sound of a man's footsteps, mingled with that of the pads of an animal, died off in the distance. A few minutes after, both children slept profoundly. The little boy and girl, lying naked side by side, were joined through the silent hours in the seraphic promiscuousness of the shadows. Such dreams as were possible to their age floated from one to the other. Beneath their closed eyelids there shone, perhaps, a starlight. If the word marriage were not inappropriate to the situation, they were husband and wife after the fashion of the angels. Such innocence in such darkness, such purity in such an embrace, such foretastes of heaven are possible only to childhood, and no immensity approaches the greatness of little children. Of all gulfs this is the deepest, the fearful perpetuity of the dead chained beyond life the mighty animosity of the ocean to a wreck, the whiteness of the snow over buried bodies, do not equal in pathos two children's mouths meeting divinely in sleep, and the meeting of which is not even a kiss, a betrothal perchance, perchance a catastrophe. The unknown weighs down upon their juxtaposition. It charms, it terrifies, who knows which? It stays the pulse. Innocence is higher than virtue. Innocence is holy ignorance. They slept. They were in peace. They were warm. The nakedness of their bodies embraced each in each, amalgamated with the virginity of their souls. They were there as in the nest of the abyss. End of section 33 Recording by Lonnie Decker.